0: Okay, friends. Story begins. Wait, so it's on. Sorry for the record. it's on speaker mode or on gallery mode. Uh, right now, I just switched it to speaker mode. I was going to switch it back. Oh, the then you'll switch it back. Okay, sounds good. Okay, we are on page forty-four. We finished the Shema, and we now return to blessing number three of the Shema. The third blessing of the Shema, the, the Shema is sandwiched between blessings, right? There's two blessings that precedes the Shema, prepares us for the Shema, and then there's a third blessing post-Shema. This is on page four forty four. It's a long blessing because it goes all the way until the middle of 45. Right? Baruch Hashem, go'al Israel. That's how it concludes. That's the conclusion of the blessing. There's an interesting history behind the... Um, where this blessing came from, how did this develop? Where did this come from? Take a look at the text for a second, page forty four. Right? We say Emmet, true and certain, established and enduring, right? We use fifteen or sixteen expressions of affirmation, affirming what we said in the Shema. There's actually a debate what exactly we're affirming. Some say it's affirming what we're about to talk about, the exodus from Egypt. We're going to talk about the exodus again. But where did this blessing come from? Who wrote it? How did it end up in the Siddur? It actually is one of the oldest prayers. Um, Not quite as old as the Amida. By the way, just trivia question. You know what the oldest prayer is? Uh, Besides for prayers that you find in Tanakh, you know, like to heal him and stuff like that. But the oldest prayer in the sitter is... Trivia question. We're going to get there. We haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, John? Modani? Mod- no, ironically, Modani is one of the newer ones. It's quite ironic. Um, Very ironic and counterintuitive. But the oldest prayer is Yelenu. I was going to guess that. Honestly. Yeah. I honestly was. Authored by wow. Joshua when they conquered the land of Israel. Okay. But where did this prayer creep into, how did this end up in the Siddur? So what happened was the Beit HaMikdash, the first Beit HaMikdash, lasted for 410 years. It got destroyed by the Babylonians. The Jews were exiled to Babylon for 70 years. Right? This 70-year exile is when the story of Purim took place, coming up. At the end of the 70 years, the Jews were able to get back to Jerusalem, get back to Israel, And Ezra gathered many of the Jewish people back from Babylon, where many of the Jews lived at this point, not all of them. At this point, there was a little bit of a diaspora and brought them back to Israel and got ready to build the second temple, which lasted 420 years. This was almost messianic, not quite, but it's like we're finally going back to our land. We're going to go back to the temple, back to the Beit HaMikdash. This is, this is the purpose. This is the trajectory of, of, of literally the beginning of time. Um, and, and even more historically, God tells Abraham, I'm going to take you and your children to the land which I'll show you. You're going to go to the land of Israel. You're going to have a Beit HaMikdash, a home for God. This is the whole trajectory of Torah. And this week's Torah portion, right? Make for me a sanctuary and I'll dwell in them. In the desert, it's temporary. We're going to have a permanent place at some point. And there's all the miracles that took place in the temple to to make this. It didn't last that long. It lasted 400. I mean, it's a long time, but it lasted 410 years, right? King Solomon built it, gets destroyed. And finally, Ezra, the Jewish leader, gathers all the Jewish people, gives them hope, gives them courage. We're going to go back. We're going to go to our land. And he succeeded in getting a good handful of families to agree to go back with him. (laughs) Unfortunately, unfortunately, many Jews were comfortable with exile. Um, In reality, the Second Temple era was much more of an exile vibe than that of the First Temple era. It really was not the same. It really wasn't the same. We didn't even have the Ark of the Covenant. At this point, it was still buried. We're still in the Vatican. No, I'm kidding. It was still it was buried. There was caves under uh, under the temple mount that Solomon built, anticipating that one day things are actually gonna be need to be hidden. And um there was many miracles that took place in the first temple that didn't exist in the second temple. It really wasn't the same. There was a lot more political pressure at this point with the Romans. You know, there was a lot of political tension and the uh this feeling that we need to act more bureaucratically, uh bureaucratically pleasant or, or you know PC essentially it really wasn't the same but Ezra said it doesn't matter we gotta do it and he succeeded in getting a number of families to agree with him and to move back to Israel and reestablish what Judaism is meant to be and at this point there was a little bit more of a diaspora you had Jews in Yemen you had Jews in uh, you had Jews in Persia obviously right the story of purim took place not long before ironically this is crazy the jews never left persia until till uh, the fall of the shah what is that the uh like the 60s 70s 1979 1979 okay i didn't realize it was that late until the 70s right late 70s, 80s jews didn't leave persia from the second from the first temple until until the fall of the shah in 1979 so there was a very strong jewish persian tradition and community Among the Jews who were hesitant to go back were Jews of Spain. The original Sephardic Jews, there was no official uh, diversity of Sephardic and Ashkenaz, but you had a Jewish community in Spain. And Ezra reaches out to them and says, guys, we're going back. We're going back to our land. We're going to establish Israel. We're going to establish the temple. We're going to establish the nucleus of Jewish life, a home for God. And they were hesitant and they didn't want to go. They anticipated that it wasn't going to be the same and that it's going to be destroyed again. And that, you know, there was a lot of calamities that came with the destruction of the temple. It wasn't just the destruction of a building, it was a destruction of a people. Um, the proportions were were quite astronomic as well. I don't know what the exact percentage is, but um, some say that it was even more than Holocaust proportions, the calamities that took place. There wasn't as many people back then or as many Jews back then. I don't know if there's many Jews, but there certainly weren't as many people in the world, but percentage-wise. They didn't want to go back. But they wanted to make the message clear that our unwillingness to go back doesn't mean we're giving up on Judaism. We just don't feel it's the right time yet. We want to wait for Mashiach. They were anti-Zion. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Before any of this existed, right? Um, We want to wait for Mashiach. We're not ready to go back yet, but we're not giving up on Judaism. We're still going to remain very strong in our Jewish traditions. We're still going to remain strong to our Jewish values. We're still going to perpetuate Jewish continuity. And to... Put their money where their mouth was, they've composed this prayer. Take a look at the words 44 true and certain, established, enduring, right? Faithful, beloved, cherished, delightful, sweet, awesome, and mighty, correct, and acceptable, good, and beautiful. Is this to us for all eternity? Truly, the God of the universe is our king, the stronghold of Jacob is the shield of our deliverance. They wrote this prayer. To show that we still believe in this. We're not giving up on our faith just because we're not moving back. Please don't look at us that way. Don't give up on us. Since then, this is before. Um, since then, it's become a central part of the of the fabric of prayer, of structured prayer which again structured prayer structured prayer as we know it only started to exist post first Temple when Ezra started writing the Amida wrote the Kaddish so they contributed this there are 15 expressions of affirmation here a lot of synonyms 15 expressions of affirmation the truth is, it's, it's actually, it's technically 16. If you count the word emet, it's 16. If you, if you don't start with the word emet, it's 15. And the reason is because um, emet, we, we don't break between the com, the culmination of the shema and the word emet. Right? We finish shema, Ani shem emet, and then we say and v'nachon meant even though it's part of the next blessing, we don't make that interception, that interruption. Um, and the reason for that, we won't get into now. Mike, you'll be getting into it when you uh, study your Talmud session in Brachus. Brachus is a great start for Talmud, by the way, because you learn all these. Uh, you learn kind of background, the backstory to kind of everything we're already doing. So it's really great. Yeah, I'm having a good time of it. Yeah, it's fun. What does the 15 expressions of affirmation represent? What is 15? Where does 15 come from? And essentially, what we're affirming again is the Shema. God is one. And the values that come with that. So Yud and he? So 15 is that's good. That's a good point. Just write the first two letters of God's name, right? Yud and He. Um, what else is fifteen? What else is 15 in Judaism? There are, you go to chapter 120 of Tehillim till 135. Each of those chapters, the 15 commandments, right? By Mel Brooks. (laughs) I just saw that. That's funny. If you go to chapter 120 to 135 of Tehillim, there are 15 chapters of Tehillim of Psalms, that start with Shirah Alot, Song of Ascent. There are 15 Songs of Ascent composed by King David. What is the significance of these 15 Songs of Ascent? There's there's all sorts of types of uh, praises and psalms to Tehillim. There's Laman to the Choir Master. There's Mizmor, there's There's all different... And then stuck in there the 15 songs of ascent. Where does this come from? What is this all about? So, in the Beta Mikdash, by the way, there were also 15 steps going up to the Beta Mikdash. The Levium, the Levites, would stand there on those 15 steps every day during the service and they would sing. What would they sing? They would sing these 15 psalms. While going up on the 15 steps. It was an important part of the service. One of the commentaries on Psalms. On Tehillim. From the. Uh, I think the 12th century. His name is. Rabbi, Rabbi David Kimchi. The Radak. Is, as is known by his acronym. Explains. That each of these Psalms. prophesies Again, at this point, the Jews were not in exile, right during the first temple, when King David wrote this. But the Psalms prophesize a time where Jews will be in exile, and they're going to be praying for the redemption. The most famous one is the Psalm we recite we recite before benching on Shabbat, Shir HaMa'alot Peshuv Hashem, a song of sense when God will return. The dwelling in Zion will realize that we were like dreamers. All of these prophesies the time where we're in exile, we're going to be in exile, and we're pining for the final redemption for the third temple or for the next temple. And this is exactly what we're doing while reciting this prayer. While affirming the Shema, we're pining. We're awakening our desire To be in the temple, to be at home and at peace with God, to be able to climb those 15 steps to enter the temple. This is what we want to do. We want to totally connect and not just the physical structure of the temple, um, not just in the literal sense, but in the spiritual sense, we want to feel at home with God. That's what the temple really represents, a place where uh, where God can call home and we can access him in a very comfortable, deep way. It's no wonder why this is the bridge that leads to the Amidah, which is the total surrender to God, as we'll get to soon. Okay, there's another representation of this time 16. If you if you include Amet, it's 16. 16 affirmations. The first two paragraphs of the Shema, which are the main parts of the Shema. Right? The first paragraph. The truth of God. The second paragraph, his commandments. The third paragraph is sort of a different thing. It talks about the Exodus from Egypt. It's bunched together, but it's technically independent, right? The first two paragraphs have a total of how many verses? You guessed it, 16. So what are we affirming with these 16 um, uh, words of affirmation? Every single sentence of that Shema is true. Every single sentence of the Shema is real. We're reaffirming that this wasn't just lip service. We didn't just recite the Shema. We believe it. That's right, God. We actually buy into this stuff, man. (laughs) So there's an analogy that's often given. You may have heard this before. There was a man who was putting on a wedding for his daughter. Weddings are expensive. This guy had a lot of money. It wasn't a big deal for him, but he didn't like to spend money. And he thought it was kind of a waste of money. I got to feed a bunch of people that I don't really care about. (laughs) He didn't have the most healthy attitude toward life, right? Um, This was his attitude. But he came up with a scheme. We'll have the reception in one place in his house or at the show or whatever. Chuppa. and then the party, the dinner, will be somewhere else at a tent. He'll hire his servant, a servant, to run in in the middle of the wedding and say, "I can't believe it! The tent's on fire!" Oh no! Everybody go home! Right? This is his plan. <laughs> okay, this is just an analogy. Don't don't get too nervous. Um, did I spoil spoil it. I spoiled it. No, good. <laughs> so <laughs> in the middle of the wedding. Right after the wedding, the servant comes running in and he says, your tent's on fire. But here's the thing. The tent actually caught fire. <laughs> you got to be careful what you wish for. The guy comes in. Master, your tent's on fire. Because goes, oh, no. No, no, no. It's really on fire. Oh, no. Everybody should go home. I, no, no. I, Your tent is literally on fire. You're losing a lot of money. I know this is bad timing, and I know that. Oh no! What a what a bummer! What a shame! Okay, uh, party's off. Everybody go home. No, no, I'm serious. The tent really caught on fire. I'm I'm not joking. You're serious. You're not just part of the. No, no, I'm serious. Your tent's really on fire. Are you sure? Right. He keeps reaffirming. Because sometimes we say things, and sometimes we mean things. In this case, he meant it. (laughs) In the case of the Shema, we're reaffirming to ourselves and to God that we didn't just say this. We believe it. And we're affirming with 16 or 15 different uh, um, expressions of affirmation that it's true, it's certain, it's established, it's enduring. This is a very powerful prayer. Knowing the historical context. Of the Spanish Jews who didn't, for whatever reason, feel like they were able to go back to Israel. But they're still believe They're still part of this. They're affirming. They're not just saying it. They believe it. They were saying the Shema before this prayer, right? They're affirming it. Take a look at the Hebrew for a second. This is interesting. You have two words. Emet v'yatsiv. Which in the English says true inserted. Emmet means true. What does the word Yatsiv mean? A certain, right? So commentaries point out something interesting. There's various commentaries on the Siddur that point out that the word Yatsiv is not a Hebrew word. It's actually an Aramaic word. The word Yatsiv is Aramaic. For Emmet. It's the Aramaic translation of Emmet. Essentially saying Emmet Emmet twice. Why twice? So the Zohar, one of the earliest works of Kabbalah, right by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. The Zohar explains this, which means this prayer predates the Zohar, just to give the historical context. The Zohar was authored probably. could have been a good 700 years after Ezra, right after this prayer. Then maybe a little earlier, maybe 600 years, 500 years. Um, the Zohar explains that emet veyatziv, it's true and it's true, two expressions of truth. Each of our patriarchs represent a different trait. Abraham, Abraham represents kindness, benevolence, he was just giving, giving, giving. He even wanted to keep his wayward son, Yishmael. He loved Yishmael to pieces, despite how difficult and how uh, rebellious, if you will, of a child he was. Yitzchak represents more of a, you know, discipline. Never left Israel day in, day out. Yaakov, Jacob, represents Emmet. Truth. Titain emet liyaakov. Give truth to Jacob. Yaakov represents truth. Yaakov is someone who literally went through hell. They say, you know what the difference between a spiritual person and a religious person is? Religious people, I don't actually believe this, but religious people practice religion because they want to stay out of hell. A spiritual person is somebody who's been to hell. I'm <laughs> back. Okay. Yaakov yeah, ve- went through the ringer. He had to leave his father's house because of his brother who wanted to kill him. Left with no money, with no possessions. He was had to then move to his uncle's house. He was duped by his uncle multiple times. He, he went through the ringer. He went through a hard time. His son was abducted and he was under the depression that his son was killed. He found out years later. But he's he's gone through a lot. He has a hard life. But Yaakov never once gave up on his faith. Never once challenged God. He lived emet. There was truth. What does true mean? True means it, it's consistent. Right? When logic is consistent, that's why we say it's true, right? When there's a when there's when there's a um what's the word I'm looking for? Well, when when logic is is short, um, I don't know when there's a fallacy is that the word when there's a fallacy in logic. Makes sense, yeah. When logic is it, it's not true, right? In order for something to be true, it has to be consistently true. And ja- Yaakov Jacob was consistent, not to say that Abraham and Isaac weren't. Isaac never left Israel; didn't have those challenges, right? everybody has their own. Trait that they that they um, exemplify. You know who else exemplified the trait of truth? Yosef. The Torah says, todot Yaakov." Here are the children of Yaakov, and it starts off with Yosef. <laughs> Why? He's the youngest. Start with the oldest. What does Rashi tell us? Rashi quotes the Midrash. Midrash Rabbah. That points out that everything that happened to Yaakov happened to Yosef. Yaakov had a brother that hated him. Yosef had many brothers that hated him. Yaakov's brother wanted to kill him. Yosef's brothers killed him. Yaakov had to flee home from a relatively young age. Yosef fled home from a relatively young age. Yaakov rose to power. Yosef rose, right? they, they had very much parallel lives. And the, the Midrash actually enumerates like 10 or so similarities. Yosef was also Emmet. It's also the truth. We're not going to use the same expression for father for son. Yosef gets the Aramaic expression of emet. Yatsiv. the v'yatsiv. It's true and it's true. When we demonstrate truth, emet, we exemplify Yaakov. When we exemplify truth, yatsiv, we exemplify Yosef. If we can live our, tr- our life truly... We can be consistent with our Judaism, despite the challenges, despite the difficulties. And Yaakov and Yosef both had incredible difficulties. If we can do that, we're honest. We're honest with our identity as Jews. It feels very good, despite how difficult it is. You know, contrast Joseph to his brother's. Yosef was in Egypt at this point for, for many, many years when he got sold. And he rose to power, became the viceroy of Egypt. His brothers come for food and write the the whole story, Right, everything kind of just unfolds. The brothers don't recognize Yosef. Yosef recognizes the brothers. Why is that? Well, because when Yosef was sold, he was 17 years old. At this point, he's in his 30s. He has facial hair. They look pretty much the same. He looks completely different. They don't recognize him, right? That's true in our physical reality, but everything that's true in a physical reality is true in a metaphysical – in the metaphysical realities as well. They didn't recognize Joseph because what Joseph represented, truth, that was quite foreign to them. You mean you can go to Egypt the most spiritually corrupted lands of the time, and still maintain your Jewish sacred values, still be consistent with your Judaism, still live truthfully? (laughs) Come on. I don't believe it. No. They didn't recognize it It was foreign to them. They've never left the shtetl. They've never went to a place where there was no minion. (laughs) They've never left Los Angeles, Brooklyn, Israel. (laughs) They've They've never left that the brothers. They stayed in their Jewish shtetl. They were shepherds. They've never been to Pleasanton, to Livermore, to Tracy. They've never been there. San Diego. San Diego. I was looking at you and thinking Pleasanton. Once Pleasanton, always Pleasanton. So they've never... This was foreign to them. You could connect and remain true to your Judaism. True to your values, just like the Spanish Jews who authored this prayer. You can remain true to your values, not because of the environment, but because it's who you are. You create the environment. What? They didn't recognize Yosef. They didn't recognize Embet. This very much relates to Purim, by the way, coming up. Because in the holiday of Purim, Haman wanted to eradicate the Jewish people. And what does he tell Achashverosh? There's a certain nation. Yeshnu There's a certain nation it's scattered among all the other nations, and they're kind of doing their own thing. They're their, they have their own traditions, their own customs, right? And he starts opening, uh, or planting seeds of anti-Semitism. And he then tells Achashverosh, "I'd like to, I'll pay you, but I'd like to be the hitman for these people." Achashverosh says, "You don't be ridiculous. You don't have to pay." <laughs> I'm on this with you, right? How did this happen? Don't we have security with God? How did this happen? Where did we fall short? When tragedies happen, calamities happen, especially to ourselves, not so much to other people, we have to to ask ourselves, where did we fall short? How can we do teshuva? Commentaries point out something fascinating. What is Haman Talahashirosh? Yesno am um, Echad. There's a certain nation, there's a singular nation. But commentaries point out that the word Yeshno, which means there is, can also be read, Yeshanu. No. There's a nation that's sleeping. Yes, they're spiritual. Yes, they're secure. Yes, they have a connection. And yes, they're indestructible from a soul level, but they're sleeping. They're not living consistently with their values. They have the values. They believe in the values. But on the outside, they're sleeping. Now we can infiltrate. Now we can infiltrate. And the solution is we got to wake up. Realign ourselves. Connect to the emet. Recite the Shema. Affirm that we actually believe this. Wake ourselves up. That's what prayer is all about. It's a wake-up call. As soon as we woke up, as soon as... Mordechai gathered all the Jewish children, rallied them and said, we are strong Jews. We are resilient Jews. We're going to study Torah no matter what. You know what happened? Afterwards, at that point, the king's sleep was destroyed, <laughs> was disturbed. As soon as we woke up, the king woke up. It had a global impact. We want to fight anti-Semitism. We got to wake up. We got to wake up from the inside. I'll tell you a great story. Or more anecdote, but this really, I found this to be really meaningful. We had a Hanukkah party several months ago at uh, Dublin, Iceland, the ice skating rink there. And there's this lady who joined. It's her first time joining a Chabad event. She was a little nervous, you know. These rabbis, rabbis look scary, you know. She was a little nervous or apprehensive. Somebody pushed her to go. Okay, it's ice skating. What's the worst that could happen, right? I knew I, I've met this lady before and had several interactions. Very nice person. I had the opportunity to meet her children. These are two young teenagers in public school. And one of them is wearing um, a Hanukkah sweater. You know, the ugly Hanukkah sweater? I'm not saying his was like, see, the, the, there's the ugly holiday sweaters. He was wearing a, a Hanukkah sweater. I said, I like your sweater. Jewish pride. I love it. It's, you know, it said Hanukkah, and it had a menorah on it. The mother looks at me with this big smile in her eyes, and she says, "He even wore it at school today. He was willing to demonstrate his Jewish values at school, to not hide from them, to live with emet, live with truth." There's another fellow in the community. He was going on a cruise several uh, several weeks ago. I spoke to him before the cruise. It was a cruise in Florida. And I'm not even sure how we how we we uh, ended up speaking about this, but I said, "Look, you're a Jew. You're going to see other Jews there. Where your keep on the cruise? Where your keeper? Be proud, Rocket Man. Be proud of who you are. It's going to give you opportunity to connect with other Jews. It's going to give you opportunity to inspire other Jews. You're going to feel great inside. You're going to feel that you're living your life more aligned, more consistently. You're going to feel great." He actually did it. I was in such awe. He's telling me the stories of other Jewish people coming up to him and him building meaningful relationships and connections and having the opportunity. It was beautiful. It's emet, It's true. This is what we're affirming. We're affirming what we truly believe in. Take a look on... Um, Again, at the paragraph two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10 lines from the top of the paragraph. You know, when it comes to emet that we're talking about truth, the definition of truth meaning consistency. The Jerusalem Talmud points out that the word emmet has three letters, aleph, mem, taf. Aleph is the beginning of the alphabet, taf, the end of the alphabet, mem, the middle of the alphabet. Truth is pervasive. Truth was, is, and will be. Otherwise, it's not true. Or it's not the ultimate truth. And this is true, no pun intended, this is true uh, multi-generationally as well. When we think about how something is true because it's going to exist, because it currently exists, it did exist, and that's Judaism. What other religion is practiced in the same exact way as um two, three thousand years ago, without any deviation or changes? If you were to if Moses were to take a trip and visit your home. Shabbat candles, mezuzah to fill in, right? Okay, the maybe it didn't have matzah ball soup, right? maybe something a little bit more spicy. I don't know, but but that's more cultural in terms of Jude- Jewish practice. What changed? Nothing. Okay, the culture changes. Did Moses have a yarmulke that looked like this? I don't know. Fine, right? Maybe he had something more, but 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 the actual Torah observances. And the Torah being studied hasn't changed. If Rabbi Akiva came to our house, he'd feel at home. This is what he's used to. Okay, the culture is different, but the but the the sacred traditions haven't changed, and that's why we say, from the first to the last generations, your word is good and eternal in truth and trustworthiness a law that will never be obliterated, From the first to the last, from the beginning to the end, from previous generations to future generations, with truth comes continuity, multi-generational continuity. And with that comes the ultimate redemption, ushers in the messianic era, which is what this prayer is ultimately uh, praying for. Right. Truly, you hold on. Where are we? Truly, you are the Lord, our God, the God of our fathers, our King, the King of our fathers, our Redeemer, the Redeemer of our fathers. Right, just like God redeemed them, the past was true in the past. It's going to be true in the future as well. Okay, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it.